Thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Church Online Podcast. This is Pastor Andrew, and whether you're listening in the car or at the gym, or maybe just sitting down with a cup of coffee and an open Bible in front of you, we hope that through this message, God will meet you right where you are and help you grow in your personal relationship with Him. So let's jump right into this week's study of God's Word together. Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you. Welcome to the House of Friends. Great to be back uh, after being out last Sunday and starting a brand new message series with you from the New Testament book of Acts. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. Let me start with this. Um, our series is called The Church on Mission. So we're going to be talking about mission, you know, not just the church, but for your life personally, what God wants to accomplish during this brief earthly life that he's given to each and every one of us here this morning. So we're going to be talking about that over the next couple of months. And um, as I was preparing for today's message, my mind went back to a series of movies that I've enjoyed, I guess, over the last 20 years or so. And it's the Mission Impossible movies. Have you seen any of those? Mission Impossible. Um, and if you've seen those, then you know that each one of those movies starts the same and ends the same, basically. But in between are some really cool stunts, which is, which is fun um, for a movie. But if you've seen those movies, then you know that each movie begins when um, these special operators, you know, receive this mysterious announcement from their superiors that self-destructs and it always says okay this is your mission yeah if you choose to accept it right if you choose to accept it um so this last summer i think it was the most recent mission impossible came out i think it was mission impossible seven and our family went to see it and you know by the seventh movie they should probably be called Mission Possible because, <laughs> right? because no matter how bad things go during the course of the movie, by the end, they always find a way to successfully complete this seemingly impossible mission. Uh, well, to understand the book of Acts, you really have to understand the people who were involved in the early church, okay, the first church. We've called it the church on mission, and um, in many ways, their mission was impossible, really, apart from the intervention of God. Simply no way they could have accomplished it. But sometimes we lose sight of just uh, what a miracle God's church is and the fact that we're here this morning in the 21st century in Spring Lake, North Carolina at Liberty Church talking about Jesus and how to live for Him and honor Him and worshiping Him. It really is a testament to these early followers of Christ and their commitment to the mission, the fact that we're here today. So um, to understand the book of Acts, you have, to, you have to see the mission. So that happens at the end of the Gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we want to go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus shares with his, you know, first followers, his first disciples, the, the, the mission that had to seem extremely, you know, totally impossible to them, okay? It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It's there on the screen behind me. Here's what Jesus told them. Okay, here's the mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I just want you to imagine for a moment, try to get inside the minds of these first century followers of Jesus. Because most of all of them, had never really understood the world at large, okay? Each one of Jesus' first disciples, none of them had ever traveled more than 100 miles from their hometown, okay? These were not, met, these were not cosmopolitan world travelers by any means. They were simple fishermen and just farmers, you know, just regular folks. It was in an era before the Internet and, and flying on planes and all those sorts of things, no printing press, Nothing like that. And so Jesus says, okay, here's the mission. I want you to take my message, the things I've been teaching you for the last three years, and go all over the world making disciples of all nations. And those words to us who grew up in the church are very familiar. But to that first group of disciples, it really did have to seem like an impossible mission. What? Going to all the world? We haven't been more than 100 miles from our own hometown. How in the world are you going to accomplish this mission through ordinary people with limited resources? It's such a big mission, an impossible mission, a grand mission. How in the world are you ever going to fulfill it through us? Well, the book of Acts is the answer to that question. How? How? It's recorded for us how this group of ordinary, first century, underfunded, under-resourced people were so committed to Christ and willing to let the power of Christ work through them that, again, the fact that we're here today is a testimony to how faithful they were to the mission. And it really is a an incredible true story that we find in the book of Acts. We find that God's church, God's people, despite fierce opposition and persecution against all odds, not only did the church survive, the church flourished. I mean, it exploded. And Acts records the, the beginnings of God's church and its initial expansion around the world. And it should be inspiring to every 21st century follower of Jesus. Here's why. Um, if you're a Christian living in America today, and many of you are, you do not have to be a, a right-wing conspiracy theorist to realize there are some dark spiritual forces at work to suppress God's truth and to silence God's voice in our culture. I have seen that increase during my own lifetime as a pastor in God's church in America for 30 plus years now. It's, it's, those voices are louder and those forces are darker and more prominent now than they were when I started doing this 30 plus years ago. I, I've seen that. Uh, every uh, survey that you read, and I believe this, every survey you read shows that religion in general and Christianity in particular in America is on the decline. Every generation, uh, there are fewer and fewer people who say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so you could, you know, 
as a Christian, uh, see those disturbing trends, and you could kind of uh, read, you know, all the bad things that are going on, and, it's, and it might be very tempted for you to feel like, wow, the way things are going, I mean, will God's church, will Christianity even survive the 21st century? But reading the book of Acts should encourage you and alleviate any of your fears. Because to be honest, on paper, from a human perspective, nobody really thought God's church would survive the first century, let alone the 21st century. We're going to see God's church was born into far more oppressive circumstances, far more uh, persecution, far more obstacles than anything most of us have ever experienced. And yet, despite all of that, here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about how we can grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ and, and fulfill His mission for us. It's a legacy. It's a testimony to their faithfulness and commitment. But not only that. You know, Acts tells us how it happened. But as we read the book of Acts you won't be surprised to realize that it wasn't so much about those early first Christians. It wasn't really, I mean, they had to decide to be faithful, to be sure. But it wasn't so much about them. It was about their leader, your leader, my leader, Jesus Christ. The one we gather every Sunday here at Liberty Church to, to worship and exalt and learn more about. The reason the church survived was not so much about them as it was about him. And what Acts records for us in the first 11 verses of chapter 1 are two historical events that fueled the mission and the message of the early church. Okay? Uh, One of these events we talk about a lot. The other historical event mentioned in these verses we don't talk about so much, but they're both of equal value from God's perspective when it comes to fulfilling the mission he has for the church and for each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And those two events are the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Uh, These two events serve as foundational pillars uh, for God's church. But what I want you to see this morning is that on a more personal level, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus are foundational to you and to me for us to live a victorious, confident, resilient, secure Christian life. We're never going to be able to live in the joy and the victory that God has in mind for us if we don't comprehend how significant the resurrection of Jesus is and the ascension of Jesus is. So let's talk about that, those two events this morning. That's what Luke talks about in uh, Acts chapter 1. We're going to begin at the beginning. You can follow along in a Bible or on the screen behind me. Here's how it begins. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, the author of Acts um, was a first century follower of Jesus named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, that's the former book that he's talking about. And he wrote both books to this guy that we don't know very much about. His name was Theophilus. 
So in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the, the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, that is, uh, after his crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Both events are mentioned in those verses, actually. But I think we would all agree that nothing will help, uh, you know, kind of kickstart a new religious movement than to have the leader of the religion publicly executed and then three days later appear, showing himself to be alive again, and he appeared to the same people who saw him die in the first place. That's a good way to get some momentum going, wouldn't you say, for, for the early church? Okay, it was the resurrection of Christ. And there are all kinds of you know, theological implications for the resurrection that we talk about frequently here in the church, especially around Easter, but really throughout the year, the resurrection in our songs and our teaching, it, it shows up all the time. But, but what I want you to see in Acts chapter 1 is how important it was that these first Christians these early believers actually have confidence and assurance that the resurrection of Christ was real. I mean, God understood, Jesus understood how imperative it was to the mission that these believers were absolutely convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus had died and that he was now alive. And thus you see in verse 3, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, there have been volumes written by competent historians and scholars, you know, laying out the evidence for Christ's actual resurrection. Uh, we talk about that sometimes on Easter Sunday. In fact, I remember one Easter Sunday years ago, uh, we were passing out copies of, I think it was Josh McDowell's little book, More Than a Carpenter, which talks about the historicity of Christ's resurrection. Um, so we, we've talked about those things before. We're not going to review all that now. But what I, what I do want you to see, though, is that to these early Christians, okay, these early believers, proof and evidence of Christ's resurrection was vitally important and necessary for them to believe it. And the reason I think that's important to point out is because in our day, you know, modern, many modern 21st century people who are skeptical of the Bible or skeptical of you know, the miracles of Jesus or, or the resurrection, very often you'll hear people like that say, well, you know, the reason those people believed all that, you know, all those stories about water into wine and, you know, uh, uh, feeding the 5,000, even the resurrection, you know, coming back from the dead, the reason all those people believed that is because they were just backward, gullible people who would believe anything. I mean, that was a pre-scientific age. They didn't know anything. They were superstitious, believed in the supernatural. You know, uh, we now live in a post-scientific age, right? We, now we understand what it means to prove things. And, and so people just don't believe that stuff today. They were gullible. They would believe anything. And yet, it's pretty evident right here in Acts chapter 1 that was not the case. Now, granted, 
Hey, people in those days did have a stronger belief in the supernatural than many people do today. To be fair, that's true. But to present these first century followers of Christ as just, you know, gullible morons who believed what they were told or they would believe any fanciful thing that came along because they didn't, you know, have the wherewithal to sort out truth from error is just not accurate. And that's why Jesus saw fit to present to them many convincing proofs. And so he, 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 he rises from the dead and he goes on this, what we might call a 40-day, you know, victory over death tour, appearing to all these people to make sure they understand, yes, it's me, I'm alive. I was dead and I'm alive again. And until you and I grasp that the way they did, we'll, ne we'll never fulfill the mission he has for us. That's the power of the resurrection. You know, Jesus said to Thomas in the Gospel of John, some of you are familiar with this account, you know, Tom, doubting Thomas, you know, he didn't believe in the resurrection um, until Jesus showed up in the flesh, right, and, and said, okay, here, feel my hands, put your hand, you know, touch my side, and then Thomas believed. But you remember what Jesus said to him. Uh, Thomas, you believe because you've seen it. Blessed are those who believe and yet haven't seen it. And so there's a measure of faith that you exercise and I exercise that even the first disciples didn't have to exercise. And yet, even for us, it is not a blind leap of faith. It's a reasonable step of faith to believe in the resurrection. There's a lot of evidence for it. Part of the evidence is these first believers. They believed it. And they had to be convinced to believe it. And Jesus convinced them. Uh, there's an uh, interesting account in uh, Matthew 28, 17. It's the last part of the Gospel of Matthew in that same chapter where we see his mission. But it's, a, it's an encounter that Jesus has, the risen Christ has with his disciples. It's one of the first times that he appears to them. So Jesus appears to his disciples uh, you know, the resurrected Christ. These are the people who were closest to him, okay? His, his closest friends prior to the crucifixion. Now Jesus, in his risen, resurrected body, appears to them. And it's almost just like an offhanded remark that Matthew makes, but it's, it's pretty amazing. Look what it says, Matthew 28, verse 17. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. Isn't that amazing? So they, they saw him, and they heard him, and they felt him, and he looked a lot like Jesus. And yet the idea of someone coming back from the grave in resurrected form to them was so difficult to believe. They weren't these backward. They were a lot more like you and I than we, than we realize. They had to be convinced that Jesus' resurrection was real. Because believing that somebody is resurrected, is, it's hard to believe. They'd never seen this before, right? I mean, they had seen what we might call resuscitations before, like Lazarus and others. Jesus would, you know, bring back to life from the dead. But they would come back in their normal earthly, you know, body just to get sick and die again. That wasn't the case with Jesus. In his resurrected body, um, it was different than the first time. 
And that's one of the reasons they struggled to believe it. He looked different. I mean, now, I mean, he looked familiar and he sounded familiar, but, but something was different. I mean, he, you know, he walked through walls and he, you know, ate fish and, and his resurrected body was different than anything they had ever witnessed before. And so they worshiped him, but some doubted. They, they, they weren't altogether sure. And so Jesus spent 40 days convincing them it was true. And perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're skeptical. Maybe you're doubtful about Christ's resurrection. And maybe you're just here t- today at church as seeker. You're a seeker of truth. And may I commend you for that. You want to find out the truth about Christianity. Well, I just want you to think, consider, what would it, what would it take for you to believe in the resurrection? What evidence do you need to believe that Jesus actually came back from the dead? And if you believed it, how would that change your life mission? How would that make a difference in your life? Whatever it is that you would require to believe, I imagine these first century believers required it as well. They didn't want to give their life for a lie. And and, And the evidence is, they witnessed the resurrected Christ and they were convinced. They believed it. And it fueled the mission for the rest of their life. Because history records that many of them suffered great loss, persecuted many of them to death before denouncing the resurrection. I mean, they gave their lives for the mission. They went through tremendous hardship for the mission. They would not have done that if they were not convinced it was true, it was real. And so Jesus makes it a point for 40 days, I'm going to make sure these guys understand I am alive. Because they're going to fall back on that truth many times when the road gets hard as they're fulfilling the mission I gave them. And that's why the Apostle Paul can claim in Romans 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal death to eternal life? Saved from a temporal earthly existence to a life of eternity, making your earthly life count for something. It doesn't just end at the grave. There's more to come. It gives this earthly life purpose. That's what we're saved from, a life of desperation, a life of fear, a life of weakness, of brokenness, of sorrow, to new life, eternal life. See, that's the power of believing in the resurrection. But the resurrection is not the only event that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. Luke also talks about the ascension of Christ. So Jesus spends, uh, you know, those 40 days uh, going around and making sure everybody, hey, it's real, man, it's true. You know, showing himself, proving to them that he has come back from the dead. But then look at verse 6. It says, Then they, that is his disciples, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Okay, so now they're convinced. 
All right? This is at the end of the 40 days. They're convinced. All right, it's real. He's alive. So their thinking is, okay, now that Jesus has conquered death, next on his things to do list is to conquer the Romans. So, hey, is now going to be the time, Jesus, that you're going to liberate Israel, your people, from Roman rule? You know, get rid of those mean, nasty Romans and put Israelites, you know, back in power. That's what they thought. They thought that Jesus' kingdom was just an earthly kingdom, a, a political kingdom. But God had much bigger plans for the mission than that. Now, hey, you can read Revelation and, and the New Testament. God has some plans for Israel, and God is going to bring about a spiritual restoration for Israel at the return of Christ. But in between now and then, God's mission is far bigger than that. He doesn't just, he doesn't just want to save Israel. He wants to save all people who turn to Christ for salvation. You know, God has a purpose and a plan and a mission for all people, not just people of a certain ethnicity or tribe or race. You read the book of Revelation, it says that around the throne of Christ are gathered people from every tribe and every nation. That's how big God's mission is. He wants to bring all people into a right relationship with Himself through Jesus. So the disciples were, were thinking too small. No, it's, it's much bigger than what they thought. And so he says to them, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to restore Israel right now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here again, like in Matthew chapter 28, he just kind of recounts the mission, okay, revisits the mission. Here's what we're about, guys. It's not a political kingdom. It's not about one nation or that, this nation or that nation. No, it, it, it's, about, it's about you going out and telling people about me all over the world, being my witness so that people can find forgiveness and grace and mercy so they can discover the purpose God has for them by believing in me. And then something happens here in Acts 1 that I know the disciples did not anticipate. Verse 9, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And this is the event that's referred to numerous times throughout the rest of the New Testament as the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And in the modern church, we don't talk about it that much. But in the early church, the ascension of Christ was on equal footing with both the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it was a big part of their presentation of the gospel to unbelieving people. Kind of interesting to think about that. The early church didn't talk so much about the birth of Christ like we do. You know, we, we talk a lot about the birth of Christ, but they viewed the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension as all part of their um, communication of the gospel. It doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the birth of Christ, and you know, Come back in December, we'll be talking about the birth of Christ for sure. It's a wonderful thing. The prophets talked about it, we'll talk about it too. But we don't always talk so much about the ascension, and yet there are two reasons why the ascension is so important 
to your faith and mine. The ascension is important because of where Jesus went and whom Jesus sent. Okay, that's what we see here in Acts. Here's why it's important. So where did Jesus go when he ascended in the clouds? Well, verse 12 simply says that he was taken up to heaven. But later in the New Testament, as you read in Hebrews and Romans and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, it gives us a little bit more detail as to where Jesus went when he ascended into heaven. You see, Jesus didn't just get back to heaven and um, God the Father says, Okay, man, uh, good job. Uh, you can take some time off now. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get with you when it's time to go back. All right? Now, Jesus didn't get, he didn't take time off. He's active. He's busy today. And Okay, well, what's he doing? Where'd he go? Well, I want you to see uh, one familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, Many of you are familiar with this verse. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And look, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he went when he ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that right hand of the throne of God is a position of authority. You know, the imagery the Bible provides there is that once Jesus finished his work on earth, the crucifixion and the res resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven, once he finished that, he took a seat at God's right hand where he rules and reigns over the universe. That's his ministry right now. That's what Jesus is doing. That's where he went. And again, one of the reasons the early church emphasized the ascension so much is because of where they were, you know, in time. You know, you know they go out sharing the gospel. You know, hey, Jesus was dead, now he's alive. And people would ask, well, if he's alive, where is he? Uh, and they would answer it, you know, by explaining to them these, this event, the ascension of Christ. But Ephesians 1 says that, that once Jesus ascended into heaven, God put everything under his authority. The position of power position of strength. And here's why that's important for you and for me. Because when you read verses in the Bible, great promises in the Bible, uh, you know, Romans 8, 28, that all things will work together for good for those who love God. The great promise. Good things, bad things, happy things, hurtful things, positive things, difficult things. All, God says, all things are going to work together for good of the person who loves the Lord. We say, well, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens. I mean, to me, a bad thing is a bad thing, is a good thing is a good thing. I don't always see the, the purpose behind it. But because of the ascension and where Jesus went, you can rest assured that Jesus is on the throne. He has authority over all things. And he's the one working on your behalf as an advocate to make sure all those things turn out for your good and his glory. See, that's the comfort and that's the peace that can come when we understand the ascension of Christ. And Jesus knew these early disciples are going to need this as they go about fulfilling my mission. There's going to be hardship and adversity they're going to encounter all kinds of difficult, painful circumstances. They're going to need to know that I'm on the throne. 
And I am serving and working for them as their advocate who loves them to shape events and circumstances in such a way that it will be for their good. And we can take great comfort in knowing that's true. You know, sometimes God seems very close to us. And if you've been a Christian for very long, there are those seasons where your prayers are being answered and God is showing up and you're just, you can see his evidence all over you know, your life. Those are wonderful, sweet seasons. But you walk with the Lord long enough, you'll go through some other seasons too where God might seem far away. And he, he might feel like your prayers, you wonder if he's forgotten about you, you're, you know, or even hears your prayers. See, the ascension shows us that when we feel it, when we don't feel it, okay, when our emotions are full to the brim with joy and happiness and victory in Christ, and those times, those low moments where we're just kind of dragging along wondering if it's all true, the ascension shows us that Jesus Christ is on his throne you can claim that promise that all things are going to work together for good if you love the Lord because Jesus has all things under his authority and he loves you. He's your advocate. He proved on the cross how much he loves you. And understanding that alleviates so much of the fear and frustration from the life that we live in this, on this earthly planet. Look what? The ascension is mentioned in Romans chapter 8. That We've been talking about Romans 8, 28, but I want you to look what Paul adds to that. It's a reminder that because Christ has ascended, you don't have to live in shame or guilt. You can live in victory. You can wake up tomorrow morning knowing that your sins have been forgiven, and you can live out your faith in Christ and your love for Christ, not as a, not as a guilty sinner. You can live out your faith in Christ and your love for Christ as a victorious child of God. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because Christ is on the throne. And he's, he's your advocate. He's your high priest. He's interceding for you. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. Here's that, that triune truth right there, the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. See, that's where he went. That's where he went. We need to understand where he went and find great confidence in knowing that he's on the throne. But it's not just where Jesus went, it's also whom he sent. You see that in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. He tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And again, his disciples didn't fully understand what that meant. They didn't realize, we'll talk about it in Acts chapter 2, but they didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what to expect. That, that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit to fill them and indwell them and empower them for ministry. They hadn't comprehended all that. But this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked to them about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, it's the last week of Jesus' life, 
And um, he's already communicated to them about his crucifixion, that he's going to be leaving them. And then he says something really strange. He says, but actually, guys, it's better for you that I leave. It's better for you. Because if I don't leave, then I won't send the Holy Spirit, the Advocate. And we might wonder, and I think they probably wondered, what do you mean it's How is that better? I mean, it seems pretty great to have Jesus in the flesh right there with you wherever you go. I think all of us would like that. So how is it better, Jesus, that that you're going to send this, you know, Holy Spirit to indwell us? But you see, the problem with the, uh, the limitations of the physical Jesus is that he is with one person at one time or this group at that time, but he's not with everybody all the time. You never see that in the New Testament. He, that's just the way the time and space continuum work, right? You can't be everywhere all the time in a physical presence. And so he, if he's with you tomorrow at work, he won't be with me because that's just the way the physical nature of things work. But you see, by Jesus going away and sending the Holy Spirit, he's not limited by that anymore. That's why it's better. So you can take Jesus with you to work tomorrow, and I can take Jesus with me to work tomorrow through the, through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, the disciples didn't understand all that. I and mean, looking back on it, we're so much more theologically advanced in our understanding of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit because, you know, we're looking back on it. They were looking forward to it. So we understand more. They didn't, they didn't get that. But it kind of goes back to that mission we read earlier in Matthew 28. Look what Jesus said. We didn't touch on this earlier, but he said, you know, go and make disciples, baptize them, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. And then look what he said. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus was not being uh, sentimental there. Jesus was not saying, hey, you're going to be in my thoughts, you know, uh, even when I'm gone. Or keep me, in your, uh, keep me in your thoughts and keep me in your mind, keep me in your heart. No, he wasn't, he wasn't being sentimental when he said, I'll be with you always. He was being extremely literal there. Even though they didn't comprehend what he meant, what he meant was, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be with you every day, all the time, for eternity. Ephesians 4 says that when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus puts his Spirit in you and seals you until the day of redemption. Until the day he calls you home. You're going to be able to walk with Jesus everywhere, every place, the highest mountain, the lowest valley. Jesus is right there with you through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I will be with you always. Have you grasped that in your life? That whether it's geographically or emotionally, you're on top of the mountain or down in the valley. You're in the darkest dungeon or on the place of prominence in your career or world, wherever you are, Jesus is there with you. His presence through His Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You don't have to go anywhere, do anything without Him being right there with you. See, that's the power of the ascension. And these early believers, they had to grasp that power. They understood it. They came to believe it, and they experienced it. There's a a familiar account. It's an interesting scene in the Gospels. We often read this around 
Easter Sunday, but it's that, that, that account, that first Easter Sunday morning when Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb. You know, she's grieving and she's sorrowful, she's weeping, and she finds the body of Jesus is gone. The tomb's empty, but she didn't believe in the resurrection. She had to be convinced like all the other guys. Okay, she didn't because she asked, you know, where have, where have they laid the, where have they laid my Savior? You know, where, where have they laid Jesus' body? You know, he's gone. She didn't just say, oh, he rose from the grave. No, she didn't believe that. But she sees a guy who she thinks is the gardener, right? You can read about it in John chapter 20. And the gardener ends up being the resurrected Christ. And do you remember what happened? I, most of you have read that account. Um, and the Hebrew language is very strong that when, when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, she literally, you know, bear-hugged him, right? She just comes up, wraps her arms around him. She realizes it's the risen Christ, and her feeling is, Jesus, I lost you once. I'll never lose you again. So she just grabs on tight to him. But do you remember what Jesus said? Uh, the first words he said to her, you know, after, after she, she grabs hold of him, is not probably what we would expect you know, the compassionate Jesus to say, well, here's the verse in John 20, verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus said. What? I mean, she loves you, Jesus. Why don't you want her to cling to you? Well, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Now, she didn't understand it at the time, but what Jesus was saying, hey, don't cling to me. Don't cling to my physical body because I'm going to ascend to my Father and I'm going to send somebody else back to you, the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be better. It's going to be better because Mary couldn't be with Jesus all the time in his physical body. She'd have to go do things and, you know, sleep and be away from Jesus. And Jesus would go other places and be with other people. He's saying, Mary, let me go. Let me go. I'm going to ascend to my Father, and when I ascend to my Father, I'll send back another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And you'll get to be with the Holy Spirit every day, all the time, through eternity. I'll never, ever leave you again. See, in a sense, you know, Mary had to let go of Jesus' hand temporarily so that she could receive him into her heart permanently through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want you to see. Those two foundational pillars of the church, of the mission, these early believers, ordinary people, limited resources, but two things they had going for them. They believed in the resurrection, and that changed everything. And they believed in the ascension, and that changed everything. And they would have never fulfilled their mission if they were not absolutely convinced of those two truths. And the application for you and I as a church here at Liberty and for you as a follower of Jesus Christ personally the foundation for us, same things. The resurrection and the ascension. If we really believe those things, we're going to be faithful to the mission. 
But if we don't really believe those things, and we haven't found the comfort and the peace and the strength in those two historical events, we're going to find it really difficult to break free from the earthly trajectory and our self-centeredness. Listen, the only way these early believers survived and flourished was because they were absolutely convinced of those two things. And so for you and I, do you believe the resurrection? And, and if you really believe that Christ came back from the dead, how does that change your life's mission? Do you believe that Christ is on the throne, ruling for you and for me, our advocate, pleading our case? And if you really believe that to be true, what are you afraid of? Why do you lack peace? You think Jesus has left you? No, no, he hasn't. I mean, he went away so he could send the Holy Spirit so he'd never have to leave you. When you and I believe these things, wow, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we think, and it equips us through the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission that God gave us. And it starts here.